Hi everyone, it's Joe Wigand from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park and home to the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation. With their help, we're starting Teddy Talks. The April program is called 26 Days with the 26th President. Each and every day, I'll be reading at length from some of what uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote and spoke during his lifetime. Uh, as we go through, uh, I hope that you'll understand why Theodore Roosevelt at the State Fair in Minnesota on Labor Day 1901 told the people there to speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. Teddy Talks are proudly presented by the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation in Medora, North Dakota. To learn more about visiting or supporting our mission to connect people to the Badlands for positive, life-changing experiences, go to Medora.com. Now, enjoy the pod. Good morning from Medora, North Dakota. It's Thursday, April 2nd, 2020. I'd like to thank you for joining me here at Teddy Talks, 26 Days with the 26th President. Uh, that's what we're calling it here uh, uh, during the month of April. I think we're going to need your suggestions for what to call our May programs. It looks like we will still be in isolation and finding ways to connect with one another. I'm glad that uh, some of you joined us yesterday. We told the thrilling story in Theodore Roosevelt's own words of the April 1st, 1886 capture of the boat thieves. And if you stayed with me from beginning to end, you showed a great deal of patience and, and uh, that was a long reading. I'll read today from some of what Theodore Roosevelt uh, spoke to us on April 2nd, 1903 and April 2nd, 1908. All three of these messages were uh, given by uh, Theodore Roosevelt to college audiences, uh, either at the University of Chicago, Northwestern University, or at the White House. And so uh, uh, I'm so very glad that you're with us again in this format. I hope that you'll uh, use uh, uh, the opportunity to send some questions and comments along. If we have any uh, complications technologically, uh, we'll realize that uh, this too shall pass. We'll work on those. Uh, I'm uh, looking forward to uh, seeing some of your uh, uh, comments uh, later today, answering your questions, perhaps the day following. That might be the best format to use. And so uh, yesterday, there was one question from my dear friend Rick Stern of Fargo, perhaps uh, the Bison Bison NDSU fan of all. And Rick asked, well, what happened to the boat thieves? I responded that uh, uh, two of the men were convicted and the third was shown leniency by the court and by Theodore Roosevelt as the arresting officer and the complainant. Uh, but I wanted to source uh, something I told you about yesterday. And, and now I think our visuals are working better with this one camera. This is uh, my favorite book about Roosevelt's ranching days. Indeed, it's called Roosevelt's Ranches. It's by my friend, Rolf Sletten, and uh, it's delightful in that it takes uh, so many of the sources that have come about from Theodore Roosevelt's own time through some of the great uh, writings uh, uh, done since. Uh, but what I really enjoy about uh, Rolf's book is uh, 
it's a wonderful uh, uh, compendium of uh, the stories of uh, Roosevelt's time here, and it's got some wonderful graphics. So, if I may, uh, we'll uh, we'll see how this works. Uh, here are some photographs that Theodore Roosevelt staged. Uh, the men who are hiding their faces are actually Wilmot Dow and Bill Sewell himself, and, and so they aren't really the boat thieves. And, and as Ralph points out, Theodore Roosevelt never claimed that they were authentic photos, but. Uh, they were the basis then for Frederick Remington's sketches uh, that were then published with, with Theodore Roosevelt's uh, uh, telling of the story. Uh, here's what Rolf has to say about what happened to the, uh, to the boat thieves uh, at the, uh, uh, at the uh, uh, trial. For stealing Roosevelt's boat, Finnegan and Bernstead were sentenced to serve 25 months in the new territorial penitentiary in Bismarck. By the time of the sentencing, Roosevelt had decided not to pursue the charges against Pfeffenbaugh. He told the judge that the old German was the kind of person who was not capable of doing either much good or much harm, and so the charges against Pfeffenbaugh were summarily dismissed. The old man thanked Roosevelt profusely. Roosevelt later told Bill Sewell this was the first time he had ever had a man say thank you for calling him a fool. And then uh, Ralph goes on to say that uh, by the late fall of 1887, Finnegan from prison sent Roosevelt a, a letter, a very conversant uh, sort of letter, and added a P.S. Should you stop over at Bismarck this fall on your Western tour, make a call to the prison. I should be glad to see you. That there was some sort of bond and unity forged by the men, uh, even though one was the sheriff and the others were the arrested boat thieves. When you come to Medora, stop by the Western Edge Bookstore, one of the finest stores west of the Mississippi for books. Spend a morning or an afternoon in that store and get a copy of Ralph Sletton's Roosevelt's Ranches. I mentioned that we uh, might start as well each day with a little bit of this day in history. It's April 2nd, and a long, long time ago, in the year 742, uh, well over uh, uh, 1,200 and nearly 80 years ago, uh, the birth of Charlemagne. And now in history, we also know Charlemagne is uh, Charles I, Charles the Great, uh, starting in 768, uh, inheriting from his father and then an untimely death of his brother. Uh, he was king of the Franks. And through four decades and more of nearly ceaseless war, king of the Lombards. Uh, the uh, Emperor of the Romans, and uh, his reign would be known as the Carolinian Empire. Uh, some in history call him the Father of Europe. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt studied the life of Charlemagne. And indeed, we have two uh, original sources on the life of Charlemagne. Uh, one was by the, uh, uh, by the monk and, and courtier Einhard, uh, the other by Notger, the stammerer. Uh, Einhard was actually a friend and servant of Charlemagne. Uh, I've got a, uh, an English translation uh, of uh, what was written in the, uh, uh, in the 800s, uh, but uh, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, you'll often find that when he writes about books that he's had with him or what he might be reading on a hunting trip, he was reading Einhard's The Life of Charlemagne. But unlike me reading the uh, modern translation Theodore Roosevelt was reading in the Old French. What a fascinating fellow Theodore Roosevelt. 
Um, I'm speaking today about uh, college students and Theodore Roosevelt's message to college students. Uh, one of my dear college friends at the University of the South, Sewanee, Tennessee, was Roland Knoll, uh, himself the son of a, uh, a uh, scholarly history professor uh, at uh, the University of the South. And uh, this is uh, famous, this is the, uh, the medieval uh, painting or the Renaissance painting, perhaps, uh, uh, at the death of Roland. Uh, that's Charlemagne visiting Roland, uh, Roland, uh, uh, a knight of Charlemagne's court who fought a rear guard action, saved the empire from, from defeat. And uh, so today, uh, college is a special thing. Uh, the friendships that we establish there are so, uh, so important in our lives. So to Roland Knoll, my late friend, uh, today's program dedicated to Roland and, and to all of my fellow students at Suwannee. On April 2nd, 1917, President Woodrow Wilson addressed the United States Congress requesting a declaration of war against Germany, uh, declaring in part, the right is more precious than peace. Theodore Roosevelt uh, held his tongue in the immediate uh, time period there. He was very interested in serving in that war and wasn't going to uh, castigate uh, Wilson a great deal at that time. Uh, but uh, it was much to the disgust of Theodore Roosevelt that nearly two years prior, uh, Wilson had said that sometimes a people can be too proud to fight. And he had said that uh, after the sinking by the Germans uh, of the uh, British commercial liner, the Lusitania, and uh, 1,200 perished, 128 Americans perished. Uh, when Theodore Roosevelt eventually, uh, in April 1917, went to the White House to see Wilson to request his commission, his ability to serve in the United States Army, uh, Wilson uh, looked at him and through him and said, President Roosevelt, we now have professional soldiers to do that work. And so it was the youngest Quentin who said, it is rather up to us to do what father preaches. And uh, all four boys went and fought in World War I. Uh, daughter Ethel, uh, daughter-in-law Eleanor, Ted Jr.'s wife, uh, Ethel's husband, uh, Dr. Derby, so many went to France uh, while they could. Uh, the two ladies going to be nurses before Congress adopted legislation to prohibit spouses uh, from going to the front lines. Uh, so uh, April 2nd uh, in history. Uh, let's go ahead and, and proceed with a, uh, some messages from Theodore Roosevelt to the college students. But first, acknowledging that uh, many of you are now distance learning, homeschooling, uh, for the younger ones, Theodore Roosevelt and his three siblings, older sister Anna, a younger brother Elliot, and uh, youngest daughter Corinne, uh, they were all homeschooled uh, in a sense of uh, having their lessons at home. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt and his brother being tutored uh, eventually as well. And, uh, but those uh, home lessons were so very invaluable. So I hope that uh, this will help your home lessons a bit. Theodore Roosevelt himself then matriculated and became a college student himself in 1876, uh, joining the uh, freshman class at Harvard College, now Harvard University, uh, Cambridge, Mass. Uh, he himself, to paraphrase, said he did not learn much of practical value at Harvard, but uh, felt it was his own fault, perhaps, that he had not applied himself properly. 
He uh, was quite the student, whereas most of the Boston Brahmins leisurely strolled back and forth to class and, and uh, were perhaps uh, many of them lazy in their studies. Uh, as he, uh, uh, as Theodore Roosevelt implied, uh, most of his classmates major in the issue of nightlife across the Charles River in Boston. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt himself, uh, it was written, uh, might likely hear this in his uh, class uh, from a professor. Now see here, Roosevelt, I'm teaching this class. Uh, let's say, uh, I think Theodore Roosevelt got everything he could uh, out of his time at uh, Harvard, including shortly thereafter his first bride, Alice. And there a little context too as to uh, why we're coming to you from Medora. Theodore Roosevelt first came to the Badlands in September of 1883 to hunt a bison bull. Uh, he was building a uh, home for uh, himself and for his wife and uh, hoped for a growing family uh, when he uh, came and got that bison bull with the assistance of Joe Ferris. And before he returned to New York, he purchased 450 head of cattle and hired Joe's brother, Sylvain Ferris and William Merrifield to run his uh, nascent cattle ranching operation at Chimney Butte, uh, where that winter uh, Ferris and Merrifield built the Maltese Cross or Chimney Butte cabin, uh, which you can now visit at the South Visitor Center to Theodore Roosevelt National Park, or do so when we're all up and running again in the summer and fall. Uh, it was then the following year that Theodore Roosevelt returned and established the Elkhorn Ranch, uh, which was the uh, beginning of the story yesterday uh, on the capture of the boat thieves. In between, there was tragedy. Theodore Roosevelt's father, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, of whom Theodore Roosevelt said he was the greatest man he ever knew. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt's father died quickly and suddenly of stomach cancer during uh, February of Theodore Roosevelt's sophomore year at Harvard. Part of his healing process that fall and the following year was to go to the north woods of Maine. And there with Sewell and Dow, climb Katahdin and hunt and hike and, and drag the Penobscot and uh, uh, Theodore Roosevelt's uh, tutor, uh, Arthur Cutler, told Sewell on their first meeting uh, to uh, watch out that uh, Theodore Roosevelt would, uh, uh, would rather uh, work himself to death than to uh, give up. Uh, and uh, Sewell didn't think much of that scrawny sophomore uh, uh, from, uh, junior, uh, entering junior at that point from, from Harvard, but uh, became quite impressed, uh, to the point where the men joined Theodore Roosevelt in 84 to help establish the Elkhorn Ranch. Uh, but on uh, February 12th, in the, in the late night on February 12th, uh, Theodore Roosevelt's uh, young bride, Alice, uh, they married uh, on Teddy's birthday, October 27th, 1880, uh, right after, uh, in the fall after Theodore Roosevelt's college graduation. Uh, he tried Columbia Law School for a while, but then became an elected member of the New York General Assembly. And it was there that on February 13th, 1884, Theodore Roosevelt received a telegram that in the night before, uh, Alice Lee Roosevelt had given birth to a daughter. Congratulations were all about, but then a second and ominous telegram came and that telegram sent young Theodore Roosevelt racing to New York City, where on February 14th, St. Valentine's Day, in the uh, early part of the day, Unexpectedly, and of typhoid fever, Theodore Roosevelt's mother, Martha Mitty Bullock Roosevelt, died of typhoid fever. And that afternoon, in his arms, and she in a coma, suffering from Bright's disease, 
It's a condition of the kidney now treatable by modern medicine. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt's young bride, Alice, died. Of the twin funeral, two days later, Theodore Roosevelt's friend, Owen Wister, wrote, Theodore knows neither what he does nor says. So from 1884 through 86, 87, those active ranching years, Theodore Roosevelt came here to the Badlands and he healed through hard work and ranching. There's nothing so good for the inside of a man or a woman as the outside of a horse. He wrote, he read, and he was a man of faith. Surely, I think himself had uh, written uh, that uh, he would not have survived uh, all of the uh, tragedy and heartache in his life, but for his uh, faith. So, uh, Theodore Roosevelt said of this uh, region, it was where the romance of his life began. And in Fargo in 1911, uh, told the people there he would have never been president, but for his experiences in North Dakota. So uh, that's why we're coming to you from Medora. And uh, this Teddy talk is dedicated to the students of the uh, class of 2020. Theodore Roosevelt uh, gave us some messages to uh, college students uh, during his lifetime. And I'd like to uh, share some of, those, uh, some of those messages with you. Um, one additional note, perhaps second only to Abraham Lincoln. As president, Theodore Roosevelt referenced the Bible in his comments, speeches, and official papers. And he do does so in two of the three speeches that I'll be referencing today. At the University of Chicago, TNR alludes to, quote, a sage who said that it was easier to be a harmless dove than a wise serpent, unquote. Uh, of course, the reference is Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. At the White House speech, April 2nd, 1908, uh, to the Intercollegiate uh, uh, League, uh, Theodore Roosevelt uh, counsels the students in part to avoid being, quote, the mere tool and representative of those who make of mammon their God. That's Matthew 6.24. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Uh, mammon, specifically the uh, Syrian god of riches, and uh, here figuratively uh, the worship of wealth. T.R. would have assumed, and correctly so, that any well-educated college audience uh, would, for the greatest part, be very familiar with their Bibles. He himself, later in life, would say, a thorough knowledge of the Bible is worth more than a college education. So uh, uh, perhaps it's uh, implied uh, by this uh, message this morning. We've got a lot of time to read, and uh, there's a lot of good reading to be done in the good book. Uh, I'll uh, read the speeches in turn, uh, maybe a little note in front of each. At the University of Chicago, when TR mentions President Harper, he is speaking of University of Chicago President William Rainey Harper. My friends in the northwest suburbs of Chicago, and I hope some of my old Palatine High School classmates are watching in, uh, will recognize William Rainey Harper Community College. Harper was one of the nation's earliest and most respected advocates of what would become the community college movement in the United States. I'm proud to say that my mother, Joan Elizabeth Prager Wiegand was an award-winning art student late in life after five children 
a, a non-traditional student in her uh, late 30s uh, at William Rainey Harper Community College. TR mentions Dr. Judson, uh, that's political science professor Henry Platt Judson, uh, who would succeed uh, uh, Harper as the second of University of Chicago's uh, uh, presidents. And together the two men uh, uh, were uh, e evenly split the helmsmanship at the University of Chicago for its first 33 years from 1890, a new university uh, until 1923. So April 2nd, 1903, Chicago, Illinois, at the laying of the cornerstone of the new law school at the university. Mr. President, men and women of the university, and you, my fellow citizens, people of the great city of the West. I am glad indeed to have the chance of being with you this afternoon to receive this degree at the hands of President Harper. And in what I have to say, there is little that I can do to save, to emphasize certain parts made in the address of Dr. Judson. I speak to you of this university, to you who belong to the institution, the creation of which has so nobly rounded out the greater career of mercantile enterprise and prosperity which Chicago not merely embodies, but of which in a peculiar sense the city stands as symbolical. It is of vast importance to our well-being as a nation that there should be a foundation deep and broad of material well-being. No nation can amount to anything great unless the individuals composing it have so worked with the head or with the hand for their own benefit, as well as for the benefit of their fellows in material ways, that the sum of the national prosperity is great. But that alone does not make true greatness, or anything approaching true greatness. It is only the foundation for it, and it is the existence of institutions such as this, above all the existence of institutions turning out citizens of the type which I know you turn out, that stands as one of the really great assets of which a nation can speak when it claims true greatness. From this institution, you will send out scholars, and it is a great and a fine thing to send out scholars to add to the sum of productive scholarship. To do that is to take your part in doing one of the great duties of civilization. But you will do more than that, for greater than the school is the man, and you will send forth men, men who will scorn what is base and ignoble, men of high ideals who yet have the robust, robust sense necessary to allow for the achievement of the high ideal by practical methods. It was also a sage who said that it was easier to be a harmless dove than a wise serpent now the aim and production of citizenship must not be merely the production of harmless citizenship. Of course, it is essential that you should not harm your fellows. But if, after you are through with life, all that can be truthfully said of you is that you did not do any harm, it must also be truthfully added that you did no particular good. Remember that the commandment had the two sides to be harmless as doves and wise as serpents, to be moral in the highest and broadest sense of the word, to have the morality that doers and the, uh, that does and fears, 
the morality that can suffer and the morality that can achieve results, to have that and coupled with it to have the energy, the power to accomplish things which every good citizen must have if his citizenship is to be of real value to the community. Dr. Judson said in his address today that the things that we need are elemental. We need to produce not genius, not brilliancy, but the homely, commonplace, elemental virtues. The reason we won in 1776, the reason that in the great trial from 1861 to 1865, this nation rang true metal, was because the average citizen had in him the stuff out of which good citizenship has been made from time immemorial. Because he had in him courage, honesty, common sense, brilliancy and genius, yes, if we can have them in addition to the other virtues. If not, if brilliant genius comes without the accomplishment, uh, the accompaniment of the substantial qualities of character and soul, then it is a menace to the nation. If it comes in addition to those qualities, then, of course, we can get the great general leader. We get the Lincoln. We get the man who can do more than any common man. But without it, much can be done. The men who carried musket and saber in the armies of the East and the West through the four grim years which at last saw the Son of Peace rise at Appomattox had only the ordinary qualities, but they were pretty good ordinary qualities. They were the qualities which, when possessed as those men possessed them, made in their some what we call heroism. And what those men had need to have in time of war, we must have in time of peace. If we are to make this nation what she shall ultimately become, if we are to make this nation in very fact the great republic, the greatest power upon which the sun has ever shone, and no quality is enough. First of all, honesty. And again, remember, I am using the word in its broadest signification. Honesty, decency, clean living at home, clean living abroad, fair dealing in one's own family, fair dealing with the public. And honesty is not enough. If a man is never so honest, but is timid, there is nothing to be done with him. In the Civil War, you needed patriotism in the soldier. But if the soldier had patriotism, yet felt compelled to run away, you could not win the fight with him. Together with honesty, you must have the second of the virile virtues, courage. Courage to dare. Courage to stand against the wrong and to fight aggressively and vigorously for the right. And if you have only honesty and courage, you may yet be an entirely worthless citizen. An honest and valiant fool has but a small place of usefulness in the body politic. With honesty, with courage, must go common sense. Ability to work with your fellows. Ability, when you go out of the academic halls, to work with the men of this nation, the men of millions who have not gotten academic training will accept your leadership on just one consideration. That is, if you show yourself in the rough work of actual life, fit and able to lead, and only so, 
You need honesty. You need courage. And you need common sense. Above all, you need it in the work to be done in the building, the cornerstone of which we laid today, the law school, out of which are to come the men who, at the bar and on the bench, make and construe, and in construing, make the laws of this country, the men who must teach by their actions all our people that this is, in fact, essentially a government of orderly liberty under the law. Men and women, you, the graduates of this university, you, the undergraduates, upon you rests a heavy burden of responsibility. Much has been given to you. Much will be expected of you. A great work lies before you. If you fail in it, you discredit yourselves. You discredit the whole cause of education. You can succeed and will succeed if you work in the spirit of the words and deeds of President Harper and of those men who I have known so well who are in your faculty today. I thank you for having given me the chance to speak to you. My goodness, he comes right between the eyes, doesn't he? I'll uh, carry on while we're in the spirit. Uh, April 2nd, that same very day, to the student body at Northwestern University, Evanston, Illinois, uh, just north of Chicago, up on the lake. Uh, the president, uh, in his remarks, uh, uh, the, uh, the president mentioned his Northwestern University president, Edmund James. The mayor is Evanston Mayor John T. Barker. Mr. President, and you, my fellow alumni, the first degree of laws that I ever received was from your university, and I am doubly glad to have the chance of coming here ten years later to meet you and wish you well. One word before I speak, especially to college men and women, and that is a word, Mr. Mayor, about the city of Evanston, to say how glad I am to be here in this beautiful city, how glad I have been to see your people, and especially the children. And it seems to me, Mr. Mayor, that they are all right in point, both of quality and quantity. And I wish to state in all seriousness that a deficiency in either cannot be atoned for by excellence in the other respect. And now a word, and only a word, to you on the college here. The President has said that still, after 2,000 years, it is a subject of discussion as to exactly how much a college education does for a man or a woman. It seems to me that the explanation why that is still a question is, after all, simple. If either the boy or the girl, the man or the woman, has not got the right stuff in him or her, you cannot bring it out. But if you have got the right stuff in you, why, then, Surely, it is the veriest truism to say that the better your training, the better will be the kind of work that you can do. This, above all, to the young men going out, each to do a man's work in the world. And if he has not that purpose, he is of no use whatsoever in our American life. We have no room for the idler here. We have no room for the man who merely wishes to lead a pleasant life. If that is all he desires, he can never count in American work. If the man has not got in him the desire to count, the desire to do good work in whichever line he adopts, then scant is our use for him. 
But if he has got in him, then all I ask uh, that I ask him to remember is this. All that I ask each one of you here to remember is this, that if you go from this university, from any university, feeling merely that your course here has given you special privileges, if you feel that it has put you in a class apart, you will fail in life. If you feel, on the other hand, that the very fact of your having had special advantages imposes upon you special responsibilities, makes it specially incumbent upon you to show that you can do your duty with peculiar excellence, if you approach life in that spirit, the university training will have done much for you. We need all the training for mind that can be given. We need all the training for body that can be given. I welcome every form of rough, vigorous, athletic sports. Some of the cheering this morning made me feel as if I was looking on at a good football game. I welcome all forms of manly, vigorous, rough exercise. The best kind of work that can be done is such as is done by your life-saving crew here. But all universities cannot be placed beside a lake where there is a chance for a crew. They are going to do the best they can with the nine and the eleven. Now, it is a great thing to have a safe and a strong and a vigorous body. It is better thing to have a sage, a strong and a vigorous mind. But best of all is to have that which is partly made up of both, and partly made up of something higher and better. Character. That is what counts. That is what counts, and the main good that can be done to you after all in a university such as this is to give you what I am certain universities do give. Character a fine and high type of citizenship. That is what we, we must strive to produce in our universities. Physical strength? Yes. Mental strength? Yes, even more than physical. But above all, let us strive to develop that for the lack of which neither bodily prowess nor mental capacity can atone. The quality of the soul, of the heart, the qualities of strength, of courage, of sweetness, which we group together when we say that a man or woman has character. I thank you for listening to me today. And finally, April 2nd, 1908, a little speech titled Some Ideals of Public Life and Their Practical Application to Politics. Uh, to be, uh, These were given at the White House to the delegates to the Convention of Intercollegiate League of Political Clubs. According to the Columbia University newspaper, there were representatives from Columbia, Yale, Cornell, Princeton, Pennsylvania, Harvard, Amherst, Williams, Brown, Syracuse, New York University, Chicago, Michigan, and Dartmouth. And they were presented to the president by Mr. Henry Wines Jessup, a class of 82 Princeton man and New York attorney. But according to the president's comments, there must have been additional delegates from other colleges as he mentions the North Dakota delegates. And this is very brief. Mr. Jessup and gentlemen, I need hardly say how sincerely glad I am to meet this particular delegation. I welcome all of you, and the rest must not mind my saying a special word of greetings to the delegates from North Dakota. I was a North Dakota man myself at one time, one of the valuable features of such a meeting as that of yesterday 
is that it brings together the young men of college training from different sections of the country to train them at bottom, our interests are the same. I shall say but a few words to you. You know what my beliefs are. You know that I feel that the college man has a special burden of responsibility upon him because to him has been given much and from him we have a right to expect much in return. Every college man gets from his college something he cannot return to her and no American citizen should ever receive something for which he cannot give a fair equivalent. And you cannot give a fair equivalent to your alma mater, except in one way. And that is the manner in which you reflect credit upon her by what you do to add to the sum of the nation's achievement. Of course, there are certain elemental things to remember. Under the conditions of American life, none of you can accomplish anything unless you come out imbued with a genuine democracy of spirit. I do not mean by that that you should have any demagogy about you. Just exactly as the parlor socialist type is without exception the least attractive type, not the most dangerous. Of course, there is a certain element of danger, but it is a dangerous uh, to a small degree, and it is ridiculous to a very large degree. Uh, so, it is peculiarly reprehensible for the college man to play the demagogue on the one hand, and on the other hand to become the mere tool and representative of those who make of mammon their god, who would teach us that American life exists primarily not for the spiritual and moral betterment of our people, but that some people can make great fortunes and the bulk of the people share the crumbs that fall from the tables of those that make the great fortunes. We have a right to expect that you college men will be leaders against both of the thoroughly unhealthy types that tend to the demoralization of American political life. After all, while there is an infinite variety of detail in the problems that generations successfully face, the fundamental quality necessary in order that these problems may be faced are always the same. What we have to strive for is the betterment of social, political, and civic conditions by bringing a little nearer the day when justice and truth and courage shall prevail, when each man shall deal justly by his brother as he is brought in contact with him, and when there shall be a measurable equality of opportunity for each man to show the stuff there is in him. Theodore Roosevelt's messages to uh, college students, April 2nd, 1903 in Chicago and Evanston, Illinois, and in 1908 at the White House. To the class of 2020, um, we know that uh, you're going to uh, conclude your college year uh, in a way that uh, none ever have done before. Uh, we're looking forward to you coming out into the workforce if any of you would like to talk about opportunities that we have here in Medora, we're going to put on a Medora musical. Uh, we're going to uh, serve folks at the Rough Riders Hotel and the Pitchfork Steak Fondue. I'm going to take people out into Theodore Roosevelt National Park, and together we're going to visit the Elkhorn Ranch. Maybe I can read to you there. With uh, a great deal of thanks to everyone at the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation, most especially my uh, colleagues, uh, Justin, Kaylee, Dylan, uh, who have helped me to uh, understand some of this uh, technology. Uh, I'll continue to strive to, uh, to do a, a better job on these uh, morning uh, gatherings, these Teddy Talks, 
Uh, we've got 24 more to get through in the month of April. Tomorrow, Friday, April 3rd, we are going to commemorate the arrival here, uh, previous to the naming of Medora for his own wife, when the Marquis de Moore came to uh, Little Missouri, the station name of the uh, uh, fairly newly constructed station as the Northern Pacific was being built west into Montana territory. Uh, on April 3rd, the Marquis de Moore uh, came to uh, stake his claim uh, along the Little Missouri. And uh, then some months later, a man of the same age, they both 25 years old, uh, Theodore Roosevelt would follow him for that uh, bison hunt. They would become neighbors. I'm going to uh, have some comments uh, about uh, the neighborly and sometimes difficult relations uh, between the Marquis de Moore and young Theodore Roosevelt. I'm also going to uh, read from uh, a speech that uh, on April 3rd, 1903, on that great Western trip coming out across the country, uh, Theodore Roosevelt spoke in Waukesha, Wisconsin, spoke about uh, foreign relations and used that analogy of uh, good neighbors uh, in, his, uh, in his comments. So uh, uh, do keep your comments and questions coming uh, via the uh, Facebook uh, pages, both at uh, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, uh, the Teddy Roosevelt Show, and at uh, Medora ND. Uh, those two Facebook pages, hopefully if I hit the right button, we, uh, uh, we were able to co-broadcast across those two Facebook pages. I enjoyed your comments yesterday. I think we had people watching from over 20 states across the country. Uh, it's not about me. It's not even really about Theodore Roosevelt. It's about all of us being in this together, the American people. Stay safe. Stay home. Stay well. God bless our doctors and nurses and everybody on the front lines. We'll see you here tomorrow, 7 a.m. Mountain, 9 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Central, 6 a.m. Pacific. For Teddy Talks, 26 days with the 26th present. Have a great day.